It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa and also anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 FM, E-L-M-N-T, or 95.7 E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and uh, listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, right across the country. And you can also uh, hear our previously uh, uh, recorded and aired segments, uh, interviews, conversations that we have with our guests. They are on our SoundCloud, and they're also uh, you can catch us on our website as well. I'd like to welcome my first guest to the show. We've had him on before, but it's been a while. Um, but it's great to have him back on because quite a bit has changed since we had him on last. So, of course, we are now in the throes of uh, COVID-19. And um, our, our guest, uh, Joel White Duck, is the owner and chef of Nish Dish uh, in uh, Toronto. And uh, he was on about a year ago, as I said, and it's a pleasure to welcome back to the show. He is uh, also calling in remotely, and we appreciate him doing that. And greetings and welcome, Joel. Hello, Ani. Thank you for having me here today. It's a, it's a pleasure. Of course, last time we saw you face-to-face, but you know what? I feel like I'm talking to you face-to-face because as I sit here, uh, I'm actually looking at your face on your website. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That's good. Yeah, it's uh, been almost a year and a lot certainly has changed. Yeah, no kidding. So listen, um, COVID-19 has impacted, of course, everyone. Absolutely everyone. You, and uh, you, you yes. know. That, of course, in the industry that you are in, in terms of catering and uh, providing food for people, um, restaurants are all shut down. There is the opportunity in some cases for restaurants and uh, places serving food to uh, have, I'm not sure about curbside pickup, but certainly it, they can, uh, you can get things sent out uh, for delivery. Um, how are you coping right now? Well, I, I mean, the the change was so dramatic and so abrupt, right? I, it's And, of course, uh, Nish Dish specializes in large order feast catering. Mm. So you do like this ceremonial feast food, and we have a huge amount of clientels, uh, clientele for the last 15 years. So the restaurant has really quadrupled our catering services. And it's been very successful up until somewhere around, I guess it was April 10th or April 9th. I can't remember the exact day, but we got our first cancellation. Mm. And I remember uh, our admin staff connecting with me and saying, oh, by the way, this order got canceled. And that's really unusual to happen. And it was quite at the last minute, but we were very busy. So I didn't pay too much notice. And then within the next nine days, we had just incessant cancellations. All of our catering orders, one by one, were canceled. And they're, they're very large orders because we, we serve most of the universities, a lot of the ministries, um, a lot of school boards. And so, I mean, there was so much to do in so short a time. It was really quite shocking, uh, at least in our industry and in, in no time at all, I began to see moving trucks on Bloor Street closing down restaurants. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, t- I talked with staff. I talked with my business partner, Highwell, about what, what will we do? Like, what are we going to do? This is, this is uh, happening very fast and not sure how we're going to keep things afloat. Most people know Bloor Street are actually all GTA commercial venues. The rent is notoriously high. And so you have to, you have to have consistent business in order just to maintain rent and staff fees. And in our case, our food is extremely expensive because it's not accessible. And so it's three and four times the amount to purchase a game meat than it is for any other um, sort of the, the more accessible meats. So this became a very serious crisis very quickly with our restaurant. So we looked towards trying to do takeout from the store and we set the store up so that it was as safe as it could be with barriers and sanitation and gloves and just making signage for the community. And we'd only have one or two people in at a time for pickup, but that, that wasn't going to hold us down. I think we did, we tried that for two weeks and it was very clear that we had to make big decisions. So Currently, uh, we're looking at uh, diversifying through our marketeria. We had a small marketeria there of First Nations foods and goods, and um, we have to relocate. So the catering business can continue when large order catering feasts resume, which we don't know when that will be right at this time. We know that a certain amount of things are going to be lifted, but we don't, we can't really say for sure when these or the orders that we do like 50 people, when is it going to be safe for people to gather and, you know, start making orders of this type of food? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you paint a very uh, clear picture of the situation you're finding yourself in and found yourself in as this uh, all started to collapse around us. Um, now you say you have to move, uh, you're, you were, you were at 690 Bloor street. Um, when you, when you say you have to move, what, what will this in, in, entail for you? Well, we, before we actually had the lease to that place, which was three years ago, mm. um, the restaurant's been open for three years. We had a private commercial kitchen. I mean, that's what we're going to have to return to. Um, we'll have to return to, like, I've got to find a location. I'll have to leave there, find a new location that's just for a private kitchen in order to cut down the enormous costs of having a restaurant and just continue, proceed how I was previously to the restaurant. And then when the time's right, look for a space back on Bloor Street. I'm looking at another place just west of there but I'm not going to be signing up to any lease anytime soon with enormous amount of commercial rent at this time uh, to open a new restaurant. I'll just keep it as is for catering can still happen. We have access to a commercial kitchen right now. So the catering can still happen, but we're not doing orders. As we said, we like, I can't do uh, one-off orders. Like I can't send one Buffalo steak to someone's house kind of thing. It's not, it's not commercially viable to do that in, in the food industry with the, with the price that we have to pay for our food. And then that involves, you know, a service of drivers and we have our own drivers, but we can't bring one order to one house. There's just no way to do that. 
So it's, it's looking at diversification of our business. And right now that's looking at um, creating an online shop of First Nations goods. So we, we do sell wild rice. We sell maple syrup. They're all First Nations products from different First Nations communities. And we're just looking at creating our own food lines so that people can order them online. And that way people can do a larger purchase that's more viable for us, you know, effectively to bring to people's homes to drop off those orders or do a curbside pickup. But we're right in transition and working on that right now. You know, uh, I hear what you're saying about sort of diversifying and sort of looking at new ideas. The marketeria that you've mentioned, um, as you say, you, you sort of had that before. Um, how would you say then, is there any, any silver lining in this situation that you can see possibly coming out of this for you? Uh, that that the, maybe some ideas you had brewing in the back of your mind that you go, okay, now might be a good time to maybe start this uh, instead of, you know, we, now that we have the chance, sort of. Yeah, I mean, it's important to have that sense of hope about this is my lifetime's work. Um, I've been doing this for a lot of years. And in the three years that we opened the restaurant, of course, uh, Niche Dish is responsible for all kinds of community projects. So those community projects still remain intact. One of them was a not-for-profit. It's, uh, it has several employees, and it's called Ojibikan Indigenous Cultural Network. Mm-hmm. And that was born right out of Niche Dish. People began to meet there um, to put together the plan for that not-for-profit. So uh, currently, Ojibikan is still doing its work with its staff uh, online. They do indigenous teaching gardens across the city that Nishdish started and handed over to Ojibakan. Um, I'm the president and chair and the founder of that uh, agency, and I'm very, very proud of it. So I'm happy to say that its community projects are still going and that uh, in our own light, we're still able to um, contribute to those gardens. So those gardens are really important at this time. In fact, one of the things we're doing is working at returning um, the gift that was given to Nish Dish uh, right before we opened. A group of people came in from Six Nations and brought us Three Sister Seeds as a gift. And they're really important seeds to our community, important seeds to our ancestral, ancestral uh, heritage of our indigenous food sovereignty for the Three Sisters plants. And so we planted gardens with them. We have a whole lot of seeds we're giving back to the community so people can plant their own food. Mm. Now, one side project that came out of this in the last three years, which is so important now, is our private business called Minikan Indigenous innovations and design. And that's my partner and I, we have this business and we teach people how to grow food. So right now we're teaching people online how to grow food in their own apartments, their balconies, um, any of the side access to land that they might have uh, beside their condos or their apartments, um, any place they can access where food can grow. Uh, we teach how to do that through our business uh, called Minikin, which means uh, the seeds in uh, Anishinaabe Moen. So that's a good thing that's come out of it. Now, the marketeria, as you said, it's something I, I, I'd already started inside Nish Dish, but I never thought that I would diversify it to a large, a large project. And I think that's what the future is for me. I think that Nish Dish will 
grow a large uh, food emporium that will be just the shop. Rather than have a restaurant, I'll have a small takeout area. The catering will expand because it's extremely successful and that's what I've been able to do well in the last 15 years. And then the marketeria will expand. It'll become this much larger forum. But, you know, that being said, I, I have to find a new location for that to happen. Yeah, for sure. I hear what you're saying. And that, that sounds like it, it might be a fairly large footprint, no, for that setup? It is, it is for sure. And so right now we're having to look at, you know, what grants are available, uh, what loans make sense to take on right now when we've lost, like there's been a huge financial devastation as all these contracts just disappeared. And right into right through June, which of course this is our highest gross season, gross grossing season, and uh, everything has actually been canceled right through to June. And uh, we've just had one person reschedule for an for for a large order that they had in September. They've rescheduled to May, so. It's hard to know, but you, you have to be resourceful. Our people are very resourceful. There's a lot of different ways to look at this. And ultimately, we all need access to food. We all need food, and we need to really take that in, into our own power and also learn in the best ways that we can how to grow food. So that's an exciting part of this where we get the opportunity to go online and show through our work at Minikin how you can grow certain types of food just so your table scraps that you might have composted. Mm. So that, that thing, that particular video is called grow without a garden. And um, you can find that on our Minikin website. I'm glad you mentioned that because that was going to be my next question is how can people access it, access this? So um, uh, how would you, how would you spell that? So people can act. Minikin is M as in mom. I, I N as in Nancy. I-K-A-A-N dot com. And, and can they access that through your, uh, is it a separate website or is it uh, something that's associated with NishDish somewhere? It's a separate site. We're, we're going to link them right now. I'm working on a, a GoFund campaign for NishDish. We, we're going to need some community help here to reach out to the community and every little bit's going to help us make it through this transition time. I'm very you know, confident that we're going to do this. We will make it through. It's not going to be at the same location or with the same restaurant, but uh, our food is still going to be uh, coming to the community's celebrations and, and tables. So that's, that, too, is a very positive thing. Well, I don't think you're alone in, uh, in when you say we're, we're not going to be in the same location. I think that there will be a lot of other businesses uh, doing the same as you. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be much upheaval as we uh, find our way through this this whole pandemic and come out the other side and what it's going to look like. Um, but as you say, uh, people do need access to food. It's great that you're actually giving people the opportunity to uh, grow their own and give them something because that, you know, it's great that, that, that you're doing that. I want to get back to that in a second. Don't go away because we're going to be right back with more right here on Element FM. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Listening to Element FM and in Toronto and Ottawa, 1065 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and of course, anywhere around the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 1065 FM Element, E L M N T, or 957 
F-M-E-L-M-N-T. And listen on your device of choice anywhere across the country, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Our guest here on Moment of Truth is Joel White Duck, and uh, we appreciate him calling in. We spoke to him about a year ago. Of course, all kinds of things have changed for everyone now that we're in the... uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And you may have heard uh, Joel just mention how he's going to have to change locations. Maybe you're a business owner and you're in the same position as Joel finds himself. Uh, as you look and try to diversify, try to find, find new ideas that you can move forward, keep yourself afloat, uh, try to bring some some not only pleasure, but some hope to people. You know, uh, I, think, I think as the weather warms up, people are, they're at home. They can grow things. Uh, can start gardens and do this kind of thing. So it's a wonderful opportunity, uh, Joel, that you're, you and your partner are taking forward to help uh, bring this to people and allow them to grow their own food. But as you also mentioned, as uh, owner uh, of Nish Dish uh, and the food that you have been providing over the last 15 years, you m- did mention that a lot of this uh, comes from uh, it's not just uh, stuff you find in your store. So it does not only add to the cost, um, but uh, just the, the trying to locate the food and get hold of it. You, you know, you are, you're in an area that not many people would look at. It's not like the, the food is coming down uh, the highway in one of the big uh, tractor trailers that are delivering other foods. You, you have other exactly. sources. Exactly. Yeah, that that's a really important thing. I mean, that's the significance of the movement of indigenous food sovereignty, because to some degree, we know what it is, but locating it and being able to bring it into our homes, that that's a whole different journey, because it's not in stores. I mean, you can go get wild rice and uh, a few of the regular stores, right? You can you could find it at no frills or the bulk stores. Mm-hmm. Or, but it's not the indigenous, uh, indigenous wild rice. Indigenous wild rice is harvested a specific way. Of course, it's through our communities. And although some of our communities still have access to wild rice, there are a few uh, nations that are still uh, harvesting it. Some of the community members is not enough for a commercial to, to like for a commercial restaurant to be taking all of that wild rice from one community. You, if I did that, there wouldn't be any for that community because that's how much we go through it. And of course, it's a very, very essential part of our diets. We absolutely have to have wild rice in our diets. If you go back and look at the uh, ceremonial stories and the stories of our, our people, our ancestors talk about uh, Nanabojo who is the one who brought the Anishinaabe to the wild rice. And we are known as the wild rice people. So your comments about how hard it is to get the food is really so important for people to understand that it's going to take all of us coming together in this journey to make this food accessible. And that's part of what the marketeer is doing. Like I have um, one commercial vendor in six nations. That's a shout out to, uh, Bonnie Sky, she's the last commercial uh, white corn maker mm. that I know of mm. in the entire area. There were a couple families there. Of course, the uh, Scott Hill family did it for generations, and they aren't doing it anymore. So I have Bonnie Sky as our last white corn producer, wow. and that's another food that's essential to our diets. That if you want to get white corn, you've got to. Grow it yourself and then know how to, how to lie it. And lying it takes several hours. And you have to know how to do it. So 
it's not simple. Like you can't walk into your local market and get it. And I can't get it on a Costco truck or a, or a Cisco truck or anything like that. We have to go long distances to get this food. And that's the same with wild rice. Our wild rice comes all the way from six hours north of Winnipeg uh, from a company called uh, Flying Wild Rice. Wow. And that's a shout out to Devin Parks and his family who go and pick that wild rice for us and, and haul it in and, and send it to us. Wow, I thought you were going to say something like, uh, you know, up around Rice Lake where you have a bunch of uh, First Nations around there. Uh, they, that wild rice grows around that area, does it not? Hiawatha? Yeah, they're, they're trying to regrow it. Some of them are still, some of the different nations, um, we've gotten it from the smokes and... Um, not Curve Lake. Uh, oh, it's the nation just uh, uh, Alderville. That's it. Alderville First Nations. Uh, miigwech to the smokes for providing us with the wild rice ceremony. However, there just isn't enough rice, like I'm saying, for a commercial venue to be taking. Right. You know, you could, you could purchase 20 pounds, but we need 55 pounds every few months. Uh, and that's, that's a lot of rice, right? Listen, Joel, when you, you first came on the, the, the line with us and you were describing how uh, the, the, the industry started, started collapsing, you, you, know, you mentioned the first cancellation you had. You were busy. You didn't think much of it. But then the cancellations just started rolling in. Yeah. What? Just, yeah. I, as, as a business owner, I can well imagine that must have been a pretty terrifying moment, seeing that whole bottom fall out of things for you. Yeah, it was, I mean, it, it just happened so quickly and it was so shocking because we were, we were strategizing, of course, all of our large purchasing, which we had begun to do uh, because it's rolling into our high season. Yep. So we were preparing all the staff, preparing all the food lines, making sure we, you know, going through our inventory, making sure it was all available in order to get through. And it's really a month by month thing because there's only so much stock you can hold inside the commercial venue that we've had. So you have to really be on top of your inventory and keeping an eye on how much food is going out to how fast it can come in. It takes a lot longer to get it in. Our only wild game, our only game supplier in the city who was located in Mississauga went under mm. uh, last year. So we now have to order it from, I think it's the, I think it's St. Catharines area. We order it and it's, it's shipped in. So again, just another, you know, massive obstacle to try and get game meat into a restaurant that of course the, that game meat has to be federally inspected. So game meat just, you just can't purchase it anywhere. Right. So just to, it, it, it was really a shocking time to have so many contracts uh, cancel, but then continue to cancel right through the next several months. So that, that in itself made me have to think about what are we going to do? I had to make big decisions. Naturally, it's a sad thing to have to uh, lay staff off. The Nishtish team is well known for being such a great community uh, venue for people to come in and feel greeted and feel at home and feel comfortable with all the staff there. And uh, that, you know, that's a really hard thing to have to do. And it's a small staff, so we all know each other really well. And that's a, it was a big deal. Yeah. You know, the other thing, of course, as you mentioned, you're in the food industry. 
And unlike, say, the fashion industry where you're dealing with clothing that can sit on the shelf, uh, food is not something, food will perish. Uh, it has a yeah. shelf life that, uh, I mean, when you, were, when you were seeing these things collapse around you, uh, how far into your orders ahead of time do you usually look ahead? And, and were you able to, you know, then cancel some of the things that you had coming in? Or how much, I guess what I'm asking is, how much uh, perishable items did you lose or, you know, were lost because of this? Well, I was able to cancel a few of the orders that I had started with, which was also difficult because that there are other people and most of them are, you know, our First Nations community members who are looking to us to, mm. to sell their product. And I just, you know, had no way to move it. So I was able to not, you know, order more. Um, we already had our very large wild rice order come in and that's, that's going to keep well for, for quite some months. That's great for that. Um, in terms of perishables and loss, I mean, I had to close everything up so fast. I gave a lot of food away, um, gave food to members of the staff and the community. So, I mean, I don't think I lost that much produce because we buy produce so regularly, like day to day and week to week, and we can't store that much of the fresh produce. So I still have game meat, of course. Uh, with this because it, it came in frozen and it's still frozen. So I have some of that, but uh, I'm looking to uh, find ways probably through the marketeria to sell some of that. Mm. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned a couple of other things there, Joel. Uh, we're getting close to the end of our time, but I, I, I want to touch on a couple of other things. One is uh, you mentioned about uh, that you, where you find your, your source of, of food, again, going back to the, you know, people may think of the commercial industry, but yours really is not a commercial industry. As you said, you are, you're sourcing items from indigenous people on reserves and in communities, which is really a, a great, unique, and, and, you know, it dates back, I guess, you know, to many years ago when that's the way it used to be. But certainly the industry has changed so much uh, that what you're doing in, in some ways is almost like a, an advantage, I guess, to some degree uh, as, you, as, you know, if things were to fall apart, you've got that network built. You can, you can access these people. If, if, you know, if all the doors opened up and things, you can, you can sort of start that again and have access to these fresh products. Um, that's true. Um, however, uh, you still have other things that are like any other business. You have you need a place, uh, a place to have your business, but you also have equipment costs as well as people. Oh yeah, it's it's enormous. I mean, the overhead for such a small business, of course, you have a lot of public health measures you have to meet as a restaurant. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of things that are leased. You mm -hmm. know, like all your linens that come in, they're leased. All your mats all of the sanitation things that are used throughout the restaurant and in the bathrooms, those things are all, all, all on leases. So that's a huge part of the overhead. Uh, there's double insurance. Of course, that's absolutely necessary for restaurants and catering business for liability purposes. Um, you know, separate from the rent, of course, we had all the things that other places have like internet bills. We had a lease for our, for our uh, espresso machine. Um, just, so many different things we have a lot of service people that have to come in and maintain items like the hood the hood system uh the oil vats they have to be cleaned uh the ovens have to be maintained there's a there's a lot of separate 
fees that go along with a restaurant when you're first opening that you don't think about so much. Catering was much different, a much lower overhead for me. So it was a steep learning curve opening and it's uh, been a steep learning curve watching things uh, pretty quickly change as they did. But we are finding ways to transition through this time. And I'm very happy with with all the people who have given this to shout outs and all the elders and community members who have continued to support us. And it's why our like our GoFundMe campaign is now going live as we're speaking. So it's it's accessible through the through uh, Facebook and Nishdish, the Nishdish contingency. So um, it's accessible, and I'm I love to. Uh, have people share their memories at Nishdish because there's so many. I mean, Nishdish just, you know, that's the thing, David. Nishdish just received uh, the gold star for catering in the Toronto Star uh, this, this past November. Well, congratulations. So we won. Yeah, we, it's just like exciting things happened. Uh, last spring, I think it was, I was on, I was, I hosted with the other chefs on. Uh, Master Chef Canada, um, which you know had a million and a half viewers, it was a really exciting year. We had an incredible year. Um, our highest grossest, grossing selling um, of the of the three years we've been open. So we're, we've been maintaining and growing as a business, and being able to reach a greater a greater audience throughout the GTA and beyond. That we were traveling with the food to different cities, right. because like you, like you've said, we are in a niche. There are very few people doing the work. There are a few other restaurants in, in the city. I hope they're, they're still functioning and finding a way through it. That's a shout out to Chef. Uh, just lost his name for a second. Sorry, for Pow Wow Cafe. Oh, yeah. Uh, Chef Sean Adler. Sean Adler's a great guy. And uh, I hope that Pow Wow is still managing to maintain itself right now. And there's Tea and Bannock that's uh, in the east side. Mm-hmm. So hopefully they're faring well through this time. Right. Very nice way to end off our conversation. It's been a pleasure having you on. And, you know, I just want to say that uh, of, those, of those accolades that you were just speaking of, uh, getting on uh, uh, a television show with all these, there are things that people can't take away from you. You've got that stuff. You can still use that to, to, uh, uh, to your advantage in the future, you know, to, as you start to rebuild things. Uh, you can you can use those tools to uh, help show that you've got some some clout. You've got some uh, some real uh, meat behind you. You might say uh, as you move your forward. <laughs> yeah. So listen, we have to uh, we have to end at this time. But listen, it's been a real pleasure to have you on once again. I really want to say uh, Nyawa and Chimigwech for joining us on a Moment of Truth and and sharing with us uh, you know what's been happening with you. Miigwech, David, and uh, thank you for having us and thinking about Nishdish and Bamapi. I hope to see you soon. All right. Thank you, Bamapi. Take care. That is the voice of Joel White Duck. He's the owner and chef of Nishdish. You can find out uh, more about Nishdish online. You can go to their website and find out more about all that stuff that they are involved with. It's nishdish.com. And uh, wow, some great stuff they are still doing, helping people to uh, prepare food, grow food. It's all great, really exciting. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of Element FM. And 
uh, moment of truth. We look forward to hearing and seeing more people here as we get rolling out uh, of the show. And we just want to say, don't go away because we're going to be right back with more right here on Element FM. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to uh, Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and anywhere across the... uh, uh, across Canada, if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM. I'd like to welcome our next guest to the show, Steve Salterio. He is a chair of accounting and auditing professor of business at Queen's University. And it's a pleasure to have him on the show. Uh, we're talking again, you know, COVID-19 is a big deal uh, right now. Everyone seems to have it on their mind, whether they like it or not. We're, we're talking about it. It affects everything that we do from uh, the time we get up now till the time we go to bed because of uh, one isolation, because of even going out to buy groceries, to go out for a walk. It's all, uh, every time we go out, we have to make sure we're uh, six feet away from the other person, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody knows the drill. But, of course, the other thing that it is doing, and we hear this now more and more as well as we get further on into this, and that is how it's affecting our economy uh, how it's going to affect us in the future and what it will mean to us as we start to roll out of this. Of course, as things are now starting to loosen up a little bit and the provinces are looking at maybe loosening things a little bit, we've had just had some businesses start to reopen. Uh, but of course, this is the not, the, not the first time that the world has dealt with the, a, a pandemic. Uh, there's been you know, there there was SARS maybe not uh, uh, quite as um, as as perhaps worldwide as this but it was on the radar um, there but a hundred years ago there was the uh, the Spanish flu and the influenza uh, and that uh, certainly affected things uh, on on many continents and in many ways and it does give us a sense and uh, a lens to look at in terms of how we can. Uh, we might perceive uh, what might happen with the economy. And uh, Stephen Saltero has uh, done something, has done some research on this, and he's looked at pandemics around the world uh, and to look at at how it has affected the economy in the past. And by looking at that, extrapolating to say this is what we might perceive uh, once we start to look at this uh, as we start to roll out and start to finally get back on our feet. Of course, we do need to find a virus or a vaccine to the virus before we can open up the doors completely. So um, things will continue as they are for some time. But it's a pleasure to have uh, Stephen Saltero with us. Uh, Welcome. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you very much. Glad to be here, David. Uh, in that little opening I made there, uh, you know, we you, you did look at the the influenza of a hundred years ago as an example uh, and sort of as a guide to say how the economy may be affected and what we might anticipate coming out of this. Uh, what were some of the initial findings that that you found? Well, the, uh, the entire aspect of trying to piece together social science research to give us some insights into uh, the current pandemic has, uh, is fraught with the standard difficulty that the research is spread over a large number of academic disciplines, often done without each other knowing that the other is doing work. 
Mm. And so my, my view as an interdisciplinary researcher was, let's see if we can examine the body of evidence across various disciplines and put together a story that might inform us. And the place that I started was with uh, the Spanish flu uh, uh, back in uh, 1918 to 1920. And the Spanish flu had nothing to do with Spain other than the fact that Spain was one of the largest industrial economies that was not involved in the uh, First World War and hence had the uh, press freedom. And so while newspapers in the United States, Canada, all across Europe were forbidden to talk about the uh, flu that was infecting their citizens, uh, Spain was under no such uh, restraints. And so the media naturally flocked to reporting about Spain <laughs> to give people insights here in Canada and elsewhere in the world uh, what was going on under wartime censorship uh, requirements. The most interesting thing about the pandemic is that there never was a vaccine developed. And that was one of the things that almost all modern uh, investigations into the potential for pandemic uh, and their economic effects assume is that a vaccine is developed very, very quickly. And generally, uh, you can inoculate the population within a year. That never happened uh, back in the Spanish flu. And this is one of the uh, the concerns that we have to think about today. There were three waves of the Spanish flu too, and the echoing of things that are happening today is unbelievable. As soon as the curve began to flatten, we started to open up the uh, economy again. And uh, lo and behold, before you knew it, the second wave of the pandemic Hit. And that was by far the most deadly of the, uh, the three waves of the pandemic. And so uh, the, the, the history of it all, the quarantine, the shutting of schools, the shutting of movie theaters that were just a new invention of taverns and meeting places was occurring uh, during this time. And just when things were normally uh, going to seem to get better, uh, people would relax their guard. Mm -hmm. And so one of the big uh, prescriptions for the economy is uh, right now is that if you want to take a chance on a significant increase in the uh, mortality rate, uh, go ahead and loosen up very quickly. Uh, and this is uh, one of the big lessons from that pandemic. It's, uh, you do a lot of pain, economically speaking, uh, by shutting down the economy the way we have. The real question is, is what is the balance and are we just going to have to repeat it again and again? And that's one of the big lessons from the Spanish flu. The other lesson from the Spanish flu was that despite the lack of vaccine, basically the entire episode was over in three years. Uh, but the cost 
in terms of human life uh, was, was huge, uh, with people estimating at the low end 20 million dead and at the high end 70 million in a day and age when the population of the Earth was barely, over, barely into the billions. Mm. Fascinating. Um, now, as you say, uh, they looking back at that Spanish flu and what they did when the curve started to flatten, uh, they started to relax, and then the second wave, and as you said, there was a third wave. Um, what what happened at that point a hundred years ago? They they went back to to uh, shutting down again. I mean, we hear the we hear the prime minister talking about this. We hear the premier talking about this, and and other leaders. And this about, is exactly what happened. Is that uh, the for example, let me give you a concrete example. In uh, November of uh, 1918, the war ended. Mm. The uh, medical officers of health. Uh, Right across Canada, recommended to people let's delay the celebration till December. Give it, give the quarantine that we've been doing, the shutting down of the many aspects of our economy, the school systems, etc. Let's give it a little more time. Uh, of course, after a four-year-long terrible war, people uh, couldn't resist celebrating. And many uh, view that, at least in, the, in many of the Western countries, as the context for why the second and deadliest mm-hmm. wave uh, took hold is that uh, we had that sudden relaxation and large amounts of, uh, of, of celebration. So uh, the uh, caution uh, has to be the byword here because the assumption of many policymakers is that we will have a vaccine within a year. Mm. And unfortunately, uh, we can't be assured of that. Uh, They came out with vaccines during the Spanish influenza. As I had about, they're not sure, but people say they were ineffective to being effective on a very, very small percentage of the people. So they were trying uh, to develop vaccines, and vaccines date back in health history well into the 1600s. So these are not, and this was not like this was a new technology they were putting into play. They just couldn't get it right. What eventually happened, apparently, there's two potential stories. There's the herd immunity story, and there's the story that the virus continued to mutate uh, into different uh, forms that became less lethal the longer that it was exposed to the population. And those are the uh, two stories that came out of that as to why, in the end, despite the lack of a vaccine, uh, things were able to get back to, uh, to, to normal. And indeed, the economy generally uh, made a comeback for the average member, and I want to stress that the, the average member issue here, uh, within two years, the three years that the ice died. The study that uh, impressed me the most, because I was reviewing over 75 studies, was the one done in Sweden. Because in Sweden, mm. there was no, uh, no effects from World War I. They were not a combatant. 
They did not have armed forces coming home in the fall of 1918. Their economy had made out pretty well. There was not a wartime economy. Uh, their economy had the same percentage of manufacturing and services and trade as uh, the United States and many uh, Western European nations had before World War I. And this, is, uh, this allows you to get rid of a lot of the issues that people say, oh, what, everything was caused by World War I. Well, in Sweden, that, that isn't the case. And they have a great record-keeping system. And the uh, big news out of what is probably the most careful study of that time was is that there were some real long-term effects. The returns to uh, capital, in other words, investment, uh, seemed to decline permanently across the country and not recover from it by a 5% shock. And that the very poorest in uh, Swedish society the bottom two and three percent in the economic pyramid uh, incurred costs that once again were not uh, alleviated through the, the roaring 20s when the overall Swedish economy for the average person recovered. The most interesting thing about the Swedish study that might be of interest to your viewers uh, and listeners is the fact that wages came back the fastest. Mm. And that, I think, is a bit of a nice silver lining to, uh, to your listeners that, uh, that wages uh, recovered very quickly. I just want to jump in and let everyone know you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across Canada by downloading the Radio Player Canada app and type in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Our guest is Steve Salterio. He is the chair of accounting and auditing and a professor of business at Queen's University in Ontario. And uh, Stephen, you mentioned a couple of things that I, I thought was interesting, especially in terms of uh, talking about Sweden. Uh, you said that because they, they didn't have anyone returning from the war, um, that they didn't, they didn't have any armed forces coming back. And so you were looking at their economic uh, setup, and they had great documenting of this. You mentioned that they, there was a drop of about 5%. Is that, that it was in investing, I think it was? Is that what you said? What the economists would call returns to capital, yes. which is basically, I think we can loosely interpret it as, as returns to investment. Okay. Now, when you say there, there were, they never got that back, they didn't get that back, was there a connection at all? And I don't know, I'm, I'm guessing at this, because they weren't involved in a neutral country, um, that that economy or investment uh, th there wasn't anything that other countries might have been uh, recouping from uh, f from war efforts or, or wartime involvement in terms of creating armed uh, vehicles or weaponry or anything like that. Did that tie in at all? I mean, see, that's what confuses the story when you go to try to map as uh, what happened in Canada or the mm. UK or most of Western Europe. Uh, or the USA, indeed, because there was this uh, shock that brought things back to their economies very quickly uh, because of unwinding the wartime production apparatus. 
we don't have that today. And that's why I think Sweden is a very interesting case mm. study because we won't mm. uh, have that particular uh, event happening in our world. And so, yes, that is one of the uh, hypotheses, but the authors uh, of this study, and I, as I said, this is probably one of the most carefully done studies I've seen. Uh, economists, when we have published work, uh, like to try to hit everything with a two by four to try to make the results go away. Mm. And they could not make this permanent decline of 5% uh, disappear and I just come back. And that did not mean that the that investments did not get positive returns in the future. It's just that there was a permanent hit during that period uh, of a decline in 5% in the returns to capital. Now, of course, things have changed somewhat <clears throat> over the last 100 years. For instance, um, we are much more interconnected. The Internet has taken over our lives in huge ways. We wouldn't be speaking right now if it weren't for the Internet, I guess, um, in the way that we are. Um, how do you think that that new technology might affect the spring back or the uh, playing into the role of recovering the economy in, in, you know, once we come out of this? Well, and that's uh, in my longer paper on this subject. Uh, unfortunately, it hit the cutting room floor at the conversation. <laughs> I talked about what are the known unknowns, and I've mm. already covered uh, one of those with you, which is the fact that uh, that uh, they never did develop an antiviral right. back in the Spanish flu and what that could mean for today. Mm. But um, there's two big differences today in our economy versus uh, the economy at the time of uh, the Spanish flu. One is, is that the service sector in our economy, which is related to your reference to the internet and things, uh, is much, much larger between 70 and 80 percent of economic activity. Back at in the time of the Spanish flu, we were making a lot more things and agriculture was a lot bigger aspect of our economy, accounting for almost 60 to 65 percent of most Western economies. So one of the big unknown unknowns is how will a service-based economy respond to um, a, the attempt to restart it. Uh, when you're making goods and you're growing agriculture, things sort of have a more natural rhythm where you're in a service economy where many different aspects of it are highly discretionary, like traveling around the world. That uh, is something that we have not encountered and we don't have a good idea. Now that was what actually is what led me into looking at a pandemic economic model. These are models that are of an overall economy uh, and attempting to say, well, what if this happened in the form of a pandemic? What would be the outcome? And there were, and, and I tried to stay away from papers that had been written during the last couple of months simply because uh, economic history tells us that forecasts that are made during a crisis are often widely inaccurate. But I wanted something reasonably modern. And so the best model that I, I came across 
And with simulation macroeconomic models, you can quickly see hundreds of scenarios. So what I did was try to focus in on the one that was closest to today that was published before this current crisis hit and that had assumptions that could map onto it. And the nice thing about that was that it showed that in a heavy service economy like the United Kingdom, uh, it mapped pretty nicely onto the experience of uh, the Spanish flu in that despite the shocks, the social distancing, the shutdown, uh, that uh, pandemic model of, of the macroeconomic effects showed uh, and a two to two and a half year recovery time uh, for the uh, overall GDP. So while I while I acknowledge your your concern and I think you're dead on right to point out that there are some big differences between the Spanish flu. That's why I took this study a little further and looked at well, what if we were modeling a modern economy? Right. Uh now, there are some things, though, that you are seeing that we are sort of seeing and hearing about that uh, are, are, are sort of mirroring situation. You pointed this out to some degree when you talked about the, this, this uh, Sweden, um, about the poor and and how that they they suffered uh, a, a great deal. We're, we're kind of we're hearing more about that as well as we get into this pandemic. And, and that that's one of the uh, the things that, that uh, is that the poor may not be affected by on average effects. Trickle down economics doesn't work. Mm. Uh, I think is the lesson of the last forty years. And so those who in the lowest level of poverty, the bottom five percent of our population, this uh, may be a tipping point. And government policy on the comeback from this that is directed at those people needs to be highly sensitive to the evidence from Sweden, which says those in those bottom percentiles, uh, they got worse and they stayed worse for the entire period of the study, which went up to 1929 or, or 10 years. Mm. Uh, what other aspects of this uh, have you looked at? Uh, I mean, I'm I'm just thinking, and you know, we see stories about this, of course, and just heard about this in the news the other day about uh, the possibility of taxes being raised, of course, because of uh, uh, of the situation and uh, trying to recover, et cetera, et cetera. What uh, what did we see in that regard uh, after the the last uh, Spanish flu? Well, that was uh, a, a day and age of a much smaller government. And so this is another one of the known unknowns. Government reacted on the whole much faster this time than they did uh, in, uh, in, back in 1918 to 21, or indeed what was built into most economists' models of pandemic shock. So uh, the quickness of the response uh, in most Western nations uh, is something that is not uh, there in most models, and it certainly didn't happen back in 1920, 1919. So this is another one of the uh, of the of the known unknowns is the fact that the government responded so quickly and pumped 
a huge amount of money into the economy. Uh, and and uh, the real question is, is, as you say, the settling up process after it's over. Mm. And this will be brand new. Uh, and in some ways, if one had to do a comparison, the only comparison that one could make would be to the debt position of governments after the end of the Second World War. Mm. And of course, that can tell us very little about this current situation, but that's what I think we're going to be in. Uh, At that point in time, uh, marginal tax rates uh, were as high as as 80 and 90% for the very wealthiest, uh, and they never really disappeared from those levels, although moderately until the Reagan revolution of 1980. Are we going to see that level of taxation again? I have no clue. Uh, but we do know that uh, at some point in time, there's a settling up process that's going to incur. So we're doing a great job right now of taking care of people, dealing with the economic fallout of some very important public health measures that have to be taken. But the question of how we're going to uh, come out of this on the other side is a very interesting question. The good news, though, is that if the economy does rebound in the way suggested by the Spanish flu and by the various models I've read, there's going to be room for uh, for uh, the for taxation and other policy means to pay this uh, back. Hmm. So it's not like it is a a zero-sum game because we may very well come out of this in much better uh, shape, economically speaking, than if we hadn't done the sort of things that we've been doing in the economy and it's suggested we will be continuing to do in the economy for the next several months. Hmm. Nicely said. Uh, We'll have to leave it there, but it's been a pleasure uh, talking with you, Stephen. Thank you very much, David. It's been a pleasure driving with you. We appreciate your insights. That is uh, Stephen Salterio. He is the uh, Chief Chair of uh, Accounting and Auditing, Professor of Business at Queen's University, and it's been a pleasure to have him on the show talking about uh, COVID-19 and the economy right here on Moment of Truth. And that is our show for today. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with more tomorrow. So please stay tuned. Thanks. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.